0: stand as you are able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 13. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests And the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the festival, for there may be a riot among the people. Now, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But the disciples saw it, and they were angry and said, Why this waste? For the ointment could have been sold for a large sum, and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not. Always have me By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to, you to God.
1: God. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Gigi, thank you so much for reading our lesson for us this morning. And to all of you, it is so good to be with you today. And our prayers have been with you, especially this week. Uh, We were talking about earlier in the week how COVID began about a year ago with a great storm that affected, in particular, East Nashville and other places in Middle Tennessee. And then this great storm that has come upon us this week uh, has reminded us uh, that uh, hopefully this may be the beginning of the end of COVID. As the numbers begin to decrease, as we begin to think about our next phase of opening up for children and youth in the days to come, we are very, very excited and prayerful about being together in, in a greater way in the days that are nearby. We're beginning a new series today, the Lenten series, that we're choosing to call Passion. Now, many of you know since last August that we've been working together in this year long series that matches the school year called Walking with Jesus. And we began at that time in August with the prayer life of Jesus. And then in October, we moved to the power of Jesus. And then during Advent, we talked about the prophecy of Jesus. As the new year began, we talked about the preaching of Jesus. And for the next 40 days, I want us to think together about the passion of Jesus. Over the next six weeks, we're going to focus exclusively on two chapters of Scripture. I invite you to go ahead, if you choose. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 26 and 27, which cover the specific details of the last week in the life of Jesus, the week that we call Holy Week or Passion Week. In these two chapters, we see especially more than ever before the redemptive nature of God's love at work in the world. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, because we miss the imposition of ashes on Wednesday night, we're going to receive them this morning in the shape of a cross, virtually or in person, as our own act of solidarity as we seek now to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross, and to follow Jesus. The text begins with Jesus reminding his disciples of the fate that now awaits him. Chapter 26, verses 1 and 2 say, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This, of course, is not the first mention of the passion. Jesus has spoken candidly about the cross as early as Matthew chapter 16. Immediately after Simon Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi, he mentions the cross. And again in chapter 17 of Matthew, again in chapter 21, and finally a fourth time in chapter 26. Suffice it to say the cross will come as no surprise to Jesus. He knows it's coming. In fact, even before the chief priest and the elders conspire against him, he knows. Matthew cites the time. It's Passover week. It's the commemoration, the celebration of the key event in the life of the nation of Israel, the exodus, the liberation of the Hebrew slaves, From Egyptian bondage. It is two days before Passover. It's hump day. It's Wednesday, two days before Good Friday, and Jesus is on his last leg, and he knows it. And yet, against the backdrop of conspiracy and betrayal, Matthew opens the curtain with this unforgettable, profound scene in Bethany at a Wednesday night supper at the home of Simon the leper. Bethany is a tiny village just two miles east of Jerusalem. Many of you have been there. In fact, last year we were there at the foot of the Mount of Olives, two miles east. The name Bethany in Aramaic, the language which Jesus spoke, literally means house of welcome or welcome home. And to be sure, Jesus was at home in Bethany. He had several friends there. You remember Lazarus made his home there. Mary and Martha lived there. Simon the leper, Bethany, Jesus was very much at home there. During Passover in Jerusalem, because people who didn't have the means could not afford accommodations in the city of Jerusalem, they often would find lodging in Bethany. And so it was during Passover for Jesus and friends. During this Passion Week, Jesus would teach in the temple by day and then walk to Bethany and bunk at night with his friends. And one night, while he was in Bethany, eating at the home of Simon the leper, something happened that was so profound that it captured the attention of all four gospel writers. In some form or fashion, in all four accounts, you find this story. A woman enters the house. Matthew doesn't even recall her name. Whether she's a guest or a friend, or maybe she's just an intruder, we don't know. But she makes a beeline to Jesus who's reclining at the table in order to give him a gift. As shall be mentioned, it's a costly gift. It's an extravagant gift, a gift of ointment, some say of cologne or perfume. And notice this, Matthew says specifically, it's contained in an alabaster jar. That's interesting. Alabaster is a mineral or a rock, perhaps gypsum, that is very soft and often used for carving. In fact, handmade alabaster was very pricey and in the first century became symbolic of purity and transparency. It was a precious commodity. In comes this unnamed woman, unannounced, unknown, and empties this alabaster jar on his head. Now, you can hear in that echoes of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this is how prophets and priests anointed kings, by daubing the head with oil. But this woman is no priest. This woman is no prophet. She is an unidentified female who evidently sees in Jesus what others cannot see. And in this impromptu, spontaneous, reckless act of devotion, she makes a confession of faith without ever saying a word. Talk about giving something up for Lent. This is why we do that. This is why we practice that. We give something of value in order to realize something of greater value in our faith. And she gave it all, every drop. Now, Jesus was touched by this gift. Jesus was moved by her gift, but as you can tell from the reading that Gigi shared, not everybody approved. In fact, verse 8 says, but when the disciples saw it, they were angry. I love the Greek word for angry, agonacteo. Agonacteo means that they were incensed. They were grieved. They were indignant, And the text doesn't say for sure. Were they more angry at the woman for giving the gift, or were they more dissatisfied at Jesus for accepting it? Whatever the case, they were bent out of shape. What a waste, they said, for this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. In fact, if you look at John's translation, it's interesting. John actually specifies the cash value of the gift. You know how much it was? 300 denarii. That's a year's worth of salary for a blue-collar guy. It's about $20,000 by today's standards. And when you think about it, think what that could have done for harvest hands. Think what that could have done for healing housing or 40 scholarships for South African students. Think of what that could have done for GraceWorks, or for CYMT or for Miriam's Promise. And so when I read about their anger personally, I'm wondering if they don't have a point. Because at first, to me, it sounds like this is poor stewardship on behalf of Jesus and the disciples. And yet, according to John's account... You know who the chief critic was? Judas. Judas Iscariot, the treasurer, who says John's gospel was a thief from the beginning who had been dipping in the kitty the whole time. In fact, the very next day, on Maundy Thursday, Judas would sell out Jesus for 30 coins I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but sometimes I've noticed that those who complain the loudest are actually concerned the least. I saw a sign the other day that said, if you see your glass as half empty, pour it into a smaller glass and stop whining. Or as another said, people who wonder whether the glass is half empty or half full are missing the point. The point is, the glass is refillable. The chief critic was Judas. The one who complained the loudest was concerned the least. Edmund Burke, you remember, who was the 18th century Irish statesman, said it is an error to suppose that the loudest complainers for the public are the most anxious for its welfare. It is often not the case, but I get it. They've got a point when you think about it. You can't substitute personal piety for social concern. Should personal devotion take precedence over care for the poor? It's a good question. I get what they're saying, and yet this woman is likely one of the poor herself. And they never stop to think that maybe the biggest sacrifice that that woman is making is not to the needy, but is to herself. But the text begs the question, at least it does to me, what is more important, personal devotion or social concern? Which one is more important? Well, I'm not so sure they're mutually exclusive. We have a tendency in the 21st century, don't we, to create a false dichotomy between the two, between personal devotion and social justice. We have the capacity and sometimes the tendency to create a false dichotomy. But the Scripture as a whole indicates that they are actually two sides of the same coin, This is not an either-or matter. This is a both-and. Ministry and mission is inspired not only by love of neighbor, but by love of Jesus. In fact, I've noticed that sometimes in the church, when we compromise our devotion to Jesus, the mission just dries up because it's not in spite of our love for Jesus that we care for the widow and the orphan— It's because of our love for Jesus that we care for the widow and the orphan and the poor. In fact, I don't think it's any accident that this story, this anointing story, follows on the heels of Matthew 25 of the parable that Jesus told about the final judgment. He said, and I quote, that the shepherd will come dividing sheep from goats And in that eternal division, our eternity, says Jesus, will be based on what we have done for a stranger in need. In fact, Jesus goes so far in that parable to deify the stranger. He says, I was a stranger and you took me in. I was hungry, and you fed me, Jesus says. I I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I, I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you came to see me. I was incarcerated, and you came to me. For what you do unto the least, that's me. It was Mother Teresa who said, there's always the danger that we just do the work or the mission for the sake of the work this is where the respect and love and devotion come in that what we do that what we do we do to god we do to christ and that's why we try to do something as extravagantly and as beautifully as possible we cannot possibly strengthen the mission by depreciating devotion And so, in the face of criticism, Jesus comes to this woman's defense. (laughs) Why do you trouble this woman? He says, She has performed a good service for me. By pouring this ointment, this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for my burial. It's a prophetic act, and she never says a word. She saw in Jesus what others had been denying. She saw a cross coming, and she saw in him a different kind of king, a suffering servant, one who would rule not with a scepter or a sword, but with a towel, one who would be fitted not with a crown of gold, but with a crown of thorns. By the way, this is why Matthew's account has no mention of the women anointing his body at the tomb because he's already been anointed by this unnamed woman. Two days before his death, she beat death to him, and the scent of her devotion fills the house. She took the most extravagant possession that she owned, and she gave it to the most extravagant expression of grace that she'd ever experienced. I want to give you an example of this, and then we're going to share in the imposition of the ashes. We're going to have a service this afternoon here at 3 o'clock for Jim Bergen. Some of you remember Jim. Last Sunday morning, Jim was at home. He went outside, slipped and fell, hit his head, came back in the house, and was preparing his computer to get online for his Sunday school class, the Genesis class, which he and Sandy actually started. And then he had an episode. And two days later, he was gone. We're blessed today to have three different generations of Bergens in this church Not many have that many in their family. The Bergens do. They've been a part of our church since 1978 when Jim and Sandy moved here from Dayton, Ohio, 43 years in the same church. Some of you may remember that sometimes in public worship, Jim Bergen would come to the lectern and read. He had this wonderful voice. In fact, sometimes it was a little intimidating preaching after Jim read because it was sort of like Morgan Freeman, followed by Gomer Pyle sometimes. But it was beautiful to hear him read. He was a behind-the-scenes man. He didn't need us to know all that he did. But on sunny day days, on Tuesdays, when those with memory loss met, Jim was there reading. Jim was at the hospital as a volunteer. He volunteered in hospice. He was behind-the-scenes He just did it because he loved God, and he loved neighbor, no matter who was looking. I've heard a number of Jim Bergen stories this week, but there's one that characterizes him best, I think, that is appropriate to this scripture. It was shared with his family by a friend on Wednesday. In the second year of the mission that we call The Manger that started actually before Grace Works ever started, it was that program where people would give clothes and furniture and toys and whatnot during December so that people in need could come and shop for their families without concern for the financial part. And Jim and Sandy were volunteering at The Manger. They were helping a mother shop and, and Sandy took charge of the mom while Jim took charge of her son. First, this loved one said Jim helped him find some dress pants and then helped him find a shirt and then a sports coat. And then when Jim suggested a tie, the boy looked down at the ground and said he didn't know how to tie a tie and he had nobody to teach him. And they said, the image of Jim standing behind that boy in front of the mirror, tying that tie over and over and over and over again, has stayed with us all these years. This boy, now dressed to a tee, so proud and thankful, said to Jim, "Mr. Jim, my friends will never recognize me all dressed up like this." And off he went with his mother, clothed in mercy and grace and I wonder what was Jim doing he was loving God and at the same time he was loving that boy personal devotion social concern two sides same coin and what he did that December night is still being told in this community as a blessed gift to the one who gave himself for us. To me, it's a picture of extravagant love and the aroma still fills the house. There is no gift that is too great for the one who gave himself for us. And so that's why during this season we receive the sign of the cross virtually or in person that we too may live as those willing to be broken and spilled out for the one who was broken and spilled out for us.